Thanks to Harry's for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, and shave gel. Go to harrys.com slash fool. It's Wednesday, July 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today from Stock Advisor and Motley Fool Options, Jim Mueller, and from Rule Breakers, Aaron Bush. Happy Wednesday, gents. Hey, Chris. Happy Wednesday. Isn't it nice to be in an air-conditioned studio on a day? Oh, yes. yes. Look, it's hot in the D.C. area, but this is one of those weeks that it's going well, to break some records. We'll just wait till Friday. <sighs> you know what? That'll be okay. I'll be right here in an air-conditioned <laughs> studio. Um, I don't know where to begin today. We've got earnings. We've got a potential media merger. Any one of the stories we're talking about today could be the lead story. But uh, we'll start with the single biggest mover in the Dow Jones Industrial Average today, and that is IBM. Second quarter profits came in higher than expected, but overall revenue fell for the 21st consecutive quarter. Jim, we're in year six. That's not a record you want to keep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're in year six at IBM of declining revenue. That's how bad is this? It's not good, and um, it really calls into question what uh, the CEO is doing in, in moving towards strategic initiatives. I mean, those those things are like the, the cloud computing, the AI, Watson, and cybersecurity um, going to be replacing the legacy revenue, the legacy business, and that's been growing, but it hasn't been growing fast enough to overcome the decline in the in its older business. Uh, over the past four quarters now, it's like 43% of total revenue over the past year. But they really need to ramp it up. And I, I did some digging about, into this, and I think I found a problem. Whether it's the problem, I don't know, but it's certainly a problem. And that is decline in R&D, research and development expenditures. The company, between 2011 and 2015, spending went down about 16% from about 6.2%. To six billion to five and a quarter billion, or about four point three percent a year on average. And if you're bringing on new products like AI and cloud computing, you need to not not pull back on R and D. Competitors like Alphabet, R and D is up over one hundred thirty eight percent over the same period, and their revenue has grown one hundred percent. Microsoft R and D up thirty three percent. Their revenue is up thirty four percent. So if you, if you're doing leading edge stuff. You want to spend money to keep making sure you can do leading edge stuff. Well, and Aaron, in addition to their R and D spending going down, their margins are going down. Their margins are getting compressed. That's another problem they're dealing with. Right. So revenue fell five percent, but net income fell seven percent. And I think it's interesting just to note that the revenue and I think profits fell over each of their five business segments too. So this isn't just something big. Ugh. It's not a big yeah. problem in one segment. It's something spread across everything. Um, if there is any silver lining, it is that the strategic imperatives, which is all the cloud and Watson, big data, um, enterprise deal with Apple, that kind of stuff, um, that that is up 5%. But I would say even that, um, that's a pretty significant deceleration from what we've seen in the past. And this Earning, I mean, this revenue decline is the the biggest drop since 2015. So it's not even that that the revenue slowdown is slowing down itself. It's that it's getting worse in some instances. And what's supposed to be transforming the company is also decelerating, which is not so good. So what is the argument for owning this stock right now? Because for a lot, look, it's IBM. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to zero. It's not going to disappear. But for a very long time, if the stock wasn't growing, and there were stretches of time, 
significant stretches of time where this was a stock you wanted to own because it was a year-over-year compounding machine. And even in the years when that wasn't happening, it was paying a steady dividend, and it could occupy a place in your portfolio where you knew, okay, well, that's safe. It's not shooting to the moon, but I'm I'm not worried about it. But I mean, again, we're in year six of declining revenue. It's a spread, as you said, Aaron. It's spread out across the company. Jim, is so- is is the reason to own this stock simply because? You have a lack of imagination, <laughs> like, like, like I mean, we talk about hey, when when we get asked the question often, when should I sell my stock? One of the answers to that is when you find a better place for your money. It seems like if you own shares of IBM, there are better places for your money. That is true, but um, holding the, the the stock might fulfill a role in in a portfolio. Uh, it's still a steady dividend pair, and the dividend is increasing over time. Uh, even while we've been going through these five years of declining revenue, and the dividend's not in any real danger of being cut. It has something like fifteen billion. What's the number? Um, something like that in in free cash flow, and it's paying about five and a half billion in dividends. So, so the dividend's safe. And if you're relying on that dividend as as income for your portfolio or for to support your lifestyle, then yeah, IBM is is a decent choice. But if you're relying on, uh, if you're trying to grow your portfolio, then that's when your when your question becomes uh, more uh, more noticeable. You like it as an options play? I do. Uh, the cover uh, if you, if you own shares, you can you can do a covered call on them to increase the yield of of uh, the income. Uh, but it's it's right on the edge of where we had options like to uh, to see. Uh, for instance, I was looking at the one hundred sixty dollars strike October twenty seventeen. Uh, call and that was paying about two point seven percent. It's a little bit light. We for a three month period, we'd like to get three percent, which is about one percent a year. Uh, and options has been running a synthetic covered call, where instead of owning shares, they own a couple of options that, uh, or they have a couple of option positions that substitute for the shares, and that leverages that return uh, quite a bit. The stock that is dominating the headlines today is Chipotle, and uh, we touched on this very briefly on yesterday's episode because it was sort of breaking news yesterday morning, and that was the fact that there was a restaurant, a Chipotle location in Sterling, Virginia, which is west of Full HQ, maybe a 30-minute drive or so, depending on the traffic, hmm. uh, that, that was closed due to some health issues. Chipotle shares were down a little bit at the open this morning. They've recovered. It's basically flat right now. So between yesterday and today, we're looking at about a six percent drop. And I think, unlike what was it, the end of 2015, when there were a couple of significant health scares and pretty widespread um, in large locations. I look at this story, and there seems to be a fair amount of uncertainty. Like no one is exactly sure how bad this is. This is not like the situation up in Boston a couple of years ago, where you know somewhere north of eighty college students got sick, that kind of thing. But um, I don't know, Jim. I'll just start with you. When you look at this right now, one of the words that pops into my head is uncertainty, and I'm curious what you think when you see. What's happening at Chipotle right now? Because it seems like there are more questions than answers. I mean, the the companies certainly seem to be on the road to recovery. Uh, same source sales growth was coming back. Uh, at ex- I, when they report, I think next Tuesday, uh, I expect them to report quarter two 
seeing some growth. I wonder what the questions on the conference call will be. Yeah, like. the questions are going to be all about this, though. Are you, are you really safe? And and the thing about norovirus, if it was indeed norovirus, is that it's really common and it's really contagious. I mean, the employees can be doing everything right and still manage to pick it up by just touching a service where some person who had contaminated that service and then pass it on that way. And I, But I don't know if that's what happened or not, and, and we might never know. But um, when coming out of 2015, after the E. coli scare of that fall and the norovirus and up in the Boston area that December, coming out of that, I said I th- uh, to Full Fest members that year in 2016, I said that uh, I believe the company can recover and can survive this and, and improve its situation and operations and recover. But they need a couple of years where nothing bad happens. And now all of a sudden we've got this. Uh, it was picked up off of a, off of a website really called iwaspoisoned.com. And the thing about that is, are those real? Right. And why is a news agency like Business Insider looking at that and then target just the ones on Chipotle and ignore the ones on any other restaurant out there? So this was kind of an interesting scene at Fool HQ yesterday afternoon where, and for those who have been here, you know what I'm talking about. Most people listening have not been to Fool HQ, but but Jim and Aaron uh, and pretty much all of our investing service analysts work in one open area, one rotunda on the fourth floor of our office. And there was a lot of conversations going back and forth yesterday afternoon looking at this website, IWasPoisoned.com, because the reports, uh, and Chipotle was very upfront about closing this location, but uh, as you said, Jim, uh, Business Insider and pretty much every other media entity that was reporting this story was going off of these reviews on a website that is not a government website. It. I, I'm not exactly sure who was behind it. And Aaron, is it fair to say there were some curious uh, reviews on this site? I mean, it's a, it's a website where you where anyone can go on and post uh, information about a restaurant that they ate at, and then they got sick as a result after that. Sterling, Virginia is not a particularly large place. It struck me, among other things, as, boy, there sure were a lot of people at this one location in Sterling, Virginia, who were posting reviews within 24 hours of this news breaking. And I'm not a conspiracy theory kind of guy, but I will just say that if you are looking to short this stock, or any restaurant stock, if you are looking to push the stock price down at a lower price, you could do worse than to figure out a way to get a bunch of people to post reviews on a site like this to knock it down. Yeah, I think when you look at some of the reviews that were put out there, it, it is pretty easy to question the credibility because some were just over the top. Sometimes it looked maybe a bit too programmatic in how it was put up. But yeah, it's a problem when the mainstream media just takes what what's there and it isn't exactly credible everyone runs with it and then it affects the brand perception of of this company and and i think just kind of to hammering what jim was saying a couple minutes ago the the brand perception of chipotle isn't exactly the strongest yeah that it's, it's, it's kind of fragile <laughs> right. at the moment yeah and so it needs things like this to not exactly happen but by the fact that something that isn't credible can cause Potential damage is kind of absurd. 
It is, although this is where I put it back on Chipotle and their management, and in particular their communications team, because I thought, to go back to the incidents in late 2015, I thought they did a pretty poor job of how they handled that from a communication standpoint. They um, they really didn't seem to grasp, and I'm, I'm referring to, in particular, Stephen Ells and Monty Moran, who at the time they were co-CEOs. Moran is now gone. Ells is the sole CEO. Uh, but I thought they were pretty tone-deaf in the way that they handled it initially. I think the response to the Sterling incident, a little bit better, but I think that the, their communications team Really needs to handle this well, and if in fact there is something nefarious going on with the IWasPoison.com website, then they should figure that out and use that to their advantage. Yeah, I'd also put some of the blame on the news organizations too. I get why they're doing it. They want they want the viewers for the advertising, which is how they make their money, but they also have a responsibility, I think, on at least doing a cursory fact check, right, and and make sure that. Yeah, just because somebody says this doesn't make it true. Well, and I, had you had ever heard of this website? I had never heard of no, this website. Never no. seen it before. It, I don't know. But there's a lot of websites out there. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, I want to go back to Netflix yesterday and and sort of get your perspective on guidance because one of the things and we didn't talk about this yesterday but one of the things that caught my attention about Netflix amazing quarter and it was amazing was a stat and I, I think I have this right I was looking for it before we got into the studio and I couldn't find it but I saw a stat yesterday that Netflix over the last 42 quarters they have beaten expectations 39 times that's a that's a fantastic track record. I think that's the stat. I was. Uh, you might be remembering something I've uh, okay. posted. So, so here, here's my question because there was a point in time it's... when I, I sort of frowned upon companies that were sandbagging, and I'm not suggesting that Netflix was sandbagging Apple back in the day, but you know, you can go back 10, 12 years, and there were there were times where Apple. You could just tell after the fact, like, oh my gosh, company. And we always say, look at what company management is putting out for expectations. There were times where clearly Apple was sandbagging their expectations. But how do you, and I'll just start with you, Jim, how do you think about company management guidance? What, as someone who does this for a living, what do you want to see? Um, because I've I've sort of done a 180 on this. Uh, one quick note first: it's 39 out of the last 46 quarters. 46 on, okay. on subscriber growth on on their targets. Okay, uh, which is a phenomenal record. Um, for guidance, I'd rather management not give it, frankly, um, for for a couple of reasons. One, analysts get lazy when. They have all the numbers given to them. I mean, so many. You've listened to plenty of uh, conference calls, Chris and Aaron. Uh, so many of the questions are along the lines of, "What number should I put in J- cell J fifty seven of my model?" Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and and I love that. Can you? Yeah, they come under the umbrella of, "Can you help me with my model?" Yeah, it's like, you, I mean, I mean, that's not the words they use. Can we get more color on this? Yeah. Is often the thing. But uh, and so analysts get lazy. Uh, 
but they also don't want to look stupid. And so they all kind of cluster right around management's guidance. And then management uh, often, especially with Netflix, they have complete control over what profit level they're going to they're gonna report. And they say, okay, we'll come in a little bit higher. or We're, we're going to come in a little lower, but we have this great reason for it or whatever. I mean, I remember General Electric had something like 10 years in a row of meeting or beating by a penny on earnings guidance. A single penny? A single penny. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> that seems calculated. When you're telling the analysts what number to put out there, and then you you meet that number, it it it's a low hurdle, right? Yeah. Um. And I, and and some reading I did this morning uh, pulled up an old blog by a uh, uh, Stern School of Business professor Aswath Damodaran uh, from back in the mid '90s. He said Microsoft has beat uh, or met expectations for the 41 of the first 42 quarters it was public. And he said, that's the golden spot for a CEO, CFO. You're in analyst paradise. Everybody loves it. Your analysts love it. They, they give you upgrades. Your stock price goes up. I mean, sure, it's, it's good for certainty and it makes us feel good, but life is uncertain. I mean, uh, I mean just look at Chipotle, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I'd rather uh, management just focus on the long-term part of the business and not try to play the quarterly game that Wall Street is now kind of dominating and insisting upon. Aaron, what about you? How do you think about guidance and are there are there companies where you factor different levels of expectations around the guidance that they give? I'm just curious if there are any companies that you watch where you think, okay, they're saying this, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt or two. I I do tend to take it on a more case by case basis, honestly, just because some companies will report things non-gap and even within non-gap uh, just the way they weight things like stock-based compensation or oh. whatever it it can be really easy to to mess with the numbers yeah don't get me started oh yeah so like <laughs> so like the GE example that wasn't they didn't know that they were necessarily going to get that amount um, in earnings like three months earlier is that they could control the the earnings that they would right. output um, so I don't I it really just depends I'm if I see constant beating then that's easy to get skeptical there. But I think I agree with Jim. My preference would be for them to not have guidance at all, um, just because business isn't linear. And by f- by putting these numbers out, it forces a lot of analysts or distracts a lot of investors to play that quarterly numbers game, when that probably is not the best use of time. And it wastes a lot of time in calls. But there's a lot of incentive for management to meet and beat their uh, estimates as well. I mean, so much of their compensation is generally tied to business performance or, or EPS or earnings growth or, or what have you. And so there, there's a big incentive. And at the extremes, you get companies like Enron, where they met had these numbers, then Wall Street kept on pushing up the numbers, and they were at the end of the quarter, you've got to meet our numbers, we've got to meet our numbers. And it just, it just spirals out of control. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to to look at both gap and non-gap numbers. I think that a lot of times gap standing for uh, generally accepted accounting principles. principles. Yeah, um, it's one of my favorite acronyms. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I got that. Okay. <laughs> um, I think it's important to look at both because a lot of times management is incentive incentivized to make non-gap look good for the company, which looks good for them. Um, and sometimes gap isn't the perfect way to look at it either. But generally, if you look at both, you can kind of piece together where things don't work for both sides. And you can kind of find more of the middle ground and find the most accurate way to look at the business yourself. 
All right, before we get to the potential deal of the day, emphasis on potential, got to say thanks to Harry's for supporting today's episode of Market Foolery. I've been using Harry's products for years. I've I just I love their stuff. Uh, it's the smoothest shave I've ever had, period. And Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades. They're giving you their trial set for free. You just cover the $3 in shipping. You uh, you can get started shaving with a free trial set that includes a razor handle, five-blade cartridge and shave gel that's a $13 value for free. Just cover the shipping. And I think I say this every time. You get one face in life. Treat your face right. Just <laughs> stop messing around with your shaving. Treat your face right. Go to harrys.com slash fool. That's harrys.com slash fool. Okay, so the potential deal of the day, because it's not finalized, is what appears to be the wooing of Scripps Networks. Scripps uh, is reportedly in talks with both Discovery Communications as well as Viacom about a potential merger. There are a couple interesting things to me in this, Aaron. One is the fact that all three of these stocks are up, Viacom only slightly, which, among other things, indicates to me that Discovery Communications is the more serious candidate here mm-hmm. in terms of merging with Scripps. Scripps Networks shares up around 14%, uh, Discovery Communications up as well, not quite as much, but mm-hmm. up as well, which tells me that there are a bunch of people who really want this deal to get done. Is Is this First, is this a no-brainer deal to merge these two cable networks? I think it's pretty smart, and I don't think this is coming out of the blue, because they actually had this discussion in 2014. So, I think it's more probable of it going through today than it did three years ago. But yeah, I think I think it could be a potentially intriguing deal. We don't know the terms yet. Both companies have pretty significant debt, so um, we'll have to, to see what it really looks like. But I think, in principle, it could be really interesting. For one reason, consolidation is sort of the name of the game across the entire television ecosystem these days, from distributors to broadcasters to content makers to the cable networks. Um, and that scale helps with with the unit economics of, of the subscribers, negotiating with the larger players, and even survival to some extent. Um, and if Discovery and Scripps did merge, that would combine some really strong brands in this case. Discovery has Animal Planet, TLC, um, their you know suite of Discovery um, named brands, and they're pretty strong in education and nonfiction in general. Scripps has HGTV, the Food Network, the Travel Network, and more. So you can see that both have pretty strong footings in similar nonfiction realms. Um, and I think that it's not these- a lot of overlap. Yeah, yeah, surprisingly, and all kind of within the same yeah, nonfiction. Space. It's pretty complementary. Mm-hmm. So I do think that if these companies were to combine, yes, they'd be able to better negotiate with the AT and T's and charters of the world, which is important. But I think more importantly, they'd also have a better shot at bundling all their content together to create some type of original subscription package, or just to better work with with OTTs. Um, where it's you don't need the the cable subscription; it's just more a one-off subscription. Um, o- OTT being over the top, that is internet, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I think I think this deal is smart because it positions themselves to to transition better into into what the future of television is going to look like versus being separate and not being able to do that as well. Um, and then lastly, Discovery has has a really strong international presence, and Scripps doesn't. As much, um, so I think if they were to to merge together, Discovery would be able to help 
the scripts part expand, um, leverage their content across those networks over there, and it would create some value. Pretty interesting. What do you think, Jim? I think if they could do uh, put together a package that they could sell to Netflix, I I wouldn't come up for air. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I we we don't have cable. My wife and I haven't had cable TV for the last fifteen years, and uh, but when when I travel, I find myself watching the Food Network and 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 channels like that because uh, one because I'm parched for it, yeah, <laughs> but but also because uh, they have some very compelling content and. Um, I, I would really uh, like to see that happen. Yeah, I was going to say I, when I was I, like you, Aaron. I was sort of going through like, okay, Discovery. I know they've got the Discovery brands. What else is in their portfolio? Uh, same for scripts. And I was looking, and uh, like you, Jim, I, I hearkened to when I travel. If I'm on a plane or if I'm in a hotel on a treadmill or something like that, those are the things I, I watch. The food now. I watch like home improvement shows because usually I'm li- I'm on a treadmill listening to music, and the shows are so well produced. You, particularly if it's any kind of a home makeover thing, like you don't need you don't even need to hear what they're saying. You can just say, "God, look how they made that kitchen so much nicer." <laughs> um, I'll also just just add really quickly that. I haven't really watched any of these networks before, just because I haven't really had experience with with cable in my adult life. So if they were to go to a Hulu or a Netflix, it would allow um, people like me who just haven't run into them to also see this content for the first time and grow that audience some. Uh, it's interesting because, as you said, a big driver uh, for a deal like this is that leverage. Not obviously the leverage with the operators, Charter, AT and T, etc., but also they're they're in competition with the likes of Disney and others, and so this this could make for uh, a stronger entity if it comes through. Mm-hmm. Aaron Bush, Jim Mueller, thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, thank Chris. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.